0: Previously on Drinks with Tony, Stephen J. Schwartz. All right, this is great. I discovered oil. His books, the real back in the day, when a
1: sex addiction problem.
0: That's kind of important.
1: Jump into.
0: It was hilarious to us. You couldn't make sense of anything. Whoa, I forgot what his name is. He's from San Francisco. I mean, uh Oakland. It's been great having drinks with you. <laughs> What a fun interview last week with Stephen J. Schwartz. Check it out in the archives on Drinks with Tony. And now here's our latest episode with Gabriella Hurstick. Enjoy.
2: I'm Gabriella Hurstick, author of Inner Witch, a modern guide to the ancient craft. And you'll sing to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah.
0: Uh, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host Tony Duchesne. Today on the show we have Gabri- Gabriella, her stick. Her book is called Inner Witch. Hi. Was that was that like a B minus?
2: That was perfect. That was an A plus. Yeah.
3: All right.
0: When did you when did you uh, start to uh, feel that you had that you had the um, the synchronicity with? Uh, I mean, there's so much of it about energy and everything.
2: Yeah, um, I've always been kind of like a crystal child, I guess. Um, I grew up in a, definitely like a spiritual household. My mom has been into like energy stuff, like crystals and yoga and that kind of like meditation for like, since like the eighties and my dad's, yeah, my dad's a rabbi and he always, he's we're reformed. So he's always really open about like talking to me about God and different religions. So I, I mean, my mom caught me like with like a little crystal pyramid telling myself to breathe in and breathe out when I was like angry when I was like two years old. Cause that's what she told me to do. And I've just always been really interested in spirituality and the unseen realm of existence. And um, I got, I received an oracle deck when I was like 11 years old for Hanukkah. And it led me to this book on witchcraft. And I'd gone to Salem, Massachusetts for on Halloween, um, a, like three years before. And I like saw a ritual and went to the witchcraft museum and learned about witches. and had this kind of like really intense experience and then a few years later got this Oracle deck and was led to this book about witchcraft and I was like this is it and it clicked and then I was it was it was right before I had my bat mitzvah and I ended up like going through my bat mitzvah knowing that I was a witch and I feel like um, my exploration of this kind of stuff has just deepened since then so it's been um, I'm 20 about to be 25 in a couple months so it's been like Thirteen years of this, wow. so yeah. yeah.
0: Did you grow up in L.A.?
2: No, I actually grew up outside Atlanta. Okay.
0: And when did you move to L.A.?
2: I moved here two years ago, but I like lived in the Valley until I was six, and then ended up growing up oh, and then okay. came back. All
0: right. So the the prodigal daughter of Los Angeles.
2: I know. I couldn't stay away. I thought I was. I never thought I was going to move back here. I said I would only move back here to work for Vivian Westwood, and then I got an internship with her here. Really? Yeah.
0: You manifest Vivian Westwood.
2: I did. I fucking love her. She's my idol.
0: So, how, did did you actually do rituals to make that manifestation happen? Was there some or connection?
2: Um, with that specific thing, I just like was like convinced I was gonna move to New York. Like I literally, I went to school in South Carolina, and then that I was just convinced I'd move to New York. And I was like deeply. I was I was starting to become deeply obsessed with Vivian Westwood, like reading her her biography and just like researching her. And um, I knew that she had an an office here. I emailed, I emailed the. <laughs> I forgot about this actually, so I didn't do a ritual. But I emailed the showroom PR guy. I followed up with him nine times before he replied, and then he finally replied. And I was in LA for Thanksgiving, and I. He told me that he would. He didn't work the showrooms on the weekend, and I was like, "Okay, like I'll come by Monday." And I just like went and, get, went and like forced him into an interview, and then he hired me. And I was there for like four months, and I still like I'm in contact with the people that work there and him and everybody at the store that like worked there like still loves me, and it's fucking dope. But I haven't met her yet, but I'll yeah. meet her. I'll meet her yeah. one day. I'll
0: meet her. Well, that, you, know, I'm, you have time. Well, that, you, know, I'm, you have time. You, people are around. That that's great. So and then, what what do you do after that? After the internships ends, you could have went to New York, and you could have went back to Atlanta, right? But but you're still in paradise.
2: I know, right? Well, my parents had moved back from Georgia to San Diego, and then I was living with my twin sister. And I mean, I was like, I wanted Vivian to hire me to work with them. But they didn't ended up changing a lot of like the stuff in house, but. Um, I had signed a lease at that point, so I was committed. I was like, I'll just, I'm will just, i just going to be here. Like, I'm already here, you know what I mean? And I'm fucking glad I'm here. I love L.A. I love L.A. Um, I ended up going from that to working at Hello Giggles, which is an online media company. Yeah, yeah. I was t- doing Latina, Latinx content for them for a while. My mom's from Mexico City. Uh-huh. Um, and then I wrote this book. And then I've kind of just been, like, freelancing, doing a bunch of random shit since this time off, or since January, so.
0: Freelancing and random shit, that's the writer's life.
2: Yeah, truly, right?
0: Um, Have you spent time in Mexico City?
2: I have. I grew up going there, like, regularly, um, at least, like, once a year, once every other year. And then I went back for the first time in, like, four or five years in May, and we, like, went to the pyramids in Teotihuacan, and, like. Went to the markets and ate a lot of food, and it was amazing. Yeah, I love it.
0: I haven't been. Mexico City is like on my. Mexico City is like calling me right now.
2: Go go yeah, go yeah. go! It's so. It is Mexico. Like Mexico, just is such a rich, vast, diverse land, and the cultures there. The, it's just like a sacred country. It just yeah. that land is just like in Mexico City, specific like too, is just. It's dope. You should go.
3: Yeah,
0: I, I just—I uh, mean, you know, I wish I—I I wish I learned more, knew more Spanish, and I want to take—I want to take more Spanish lessons and uh, increase that. And and just like I want to, well, I want to be able to read in Spanish one day, because then I can read like some of my favorite writers that uh, you know that have been translated. Anyway. So, uh, but Mexico City—I don't know—I just—I just have this. It's a literary town in my head. For some odd reason, I—I I have that vibe. Maybe it's William Burroughs and all those guys went down there, but I don't I didn't know. know that actually,
2: Eli, that,
0: that William Burroughs was in—did he go to Mexico City? They were in Mexico for sure. He killed his wife in uh, Mexico.
2: Oh my gosh, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I just—I love like the all the different cultures, and I mean like the pyramids there. Like, there are multiple. Different kind, like people that have lived there over thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. It's just like there's so much magic, like in in that land and like in the pyramid. Ugh, oh, I love it. You should definitely go.
0: So, do, do you um, do like uh, as far as your uh, witchcraft? Do you feel like um, like you're in tune on certain things? Um, is that like you tune in? Is that how it is?
2: Um, I definitely feel like I get vibes and pick up energies. I don't have like visions or anything like that, but I definitely feel very like, I can kind of sense, I can definitely sense stuff like that. Um, And I think just in in Mexico, it's like there's so much going on with all the senses all the time. It's like almost overstimulating in a way that like you can pick up on stuff, but like at the pyramids and like, I mean, you can go to like the the palace of fine arts like one of the um, wonders of the world and then there's like a excavation site right next door it's 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 just like you feel if you're if you're doing any kind of i think of like magical work or mindful practice whether that's yoga or meditation or journaling wait i'm gonna should i help, I'm gonna help.
0: daniel <laughs> what, what what inspired you to write to just put a book together um, about the craft of, uh, witchcraft. And I love how you like call it a craft and the words you use about the, but you know, you, you, you really, it's not a, um, some of these books I read and I'm just like, this person's like yelling at me and I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't like being yelled at, but this, yours was just, it was just like a gentle, Hey, come on in and learn some stuff, you know?
2: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Well, I've been, you know, I've been practicing for a, a long time and I, had a fashion blog for a while. That's like my background's in fashion writing, and up until I wrote this book, I thought I was going to be a fashion editor, and um, like went to school for that. And when I like about five years ago, I wrote a blog, or when I was in college, I started doing outfit like outfits and outfit blog posts inspired by tarot cards, and then I started writing about witchcraft on my blog, and then. Um, I started freelancing and writing about spirituality and style, and the overlap, and um, eventually started writing just like about witchcraft for Broadly, which is VICE's feminist site, I did like a winter solstice guide for them, and then started writing about for nylon, and I've had a column with them for two years now called Ask a Witch, which is what it sounds like. Um,
0: and, and how how's that call him? So do, uh, do people, call, do you get a lot of questions and then you just sift through and go, this person's just trolling, this person actually has a real question kind of thing?
2: Yeah, pretty much. At this point, it's not so much, I don't get, I'll have like the, hey, are you a real, a real witch? Please answer me, like help me with this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I'm, I can't I can't, I um, can't. But I mean, at this point. Do you
0: respond to those or no? It, it
2: really, it depends. Yeah which it's, on case by case but I mean,
0: it's it's harder when you can't see the face i think what you don't know the intention of the person yeah, where so
2: and also it's like i i'm my work is like is valuable and i'm not just i don't just do that for for free and i have to have boundaries with social media because people expect you to be giving all the time oh
3: right yeah, yeah.
2: so it depends <laughs> you know like there are people and if they actually need help like if i can help them i do but like it just it really just depends but um so I don't, my, for for my column, it's more of like at this point I've been doing it for two years. It's like people ask me questions I've already answered. Oh. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'll just like answer like the questions I really like. It's really fun. It's every other month at this point, so I answer like three questions a column. Oh, that's cool. So it's been good.
0: Yeah, I um, well, I had a film a film I worked on came out, and then when I back went back to San Francisco, everyone wanted me to read their screenplays. i don't like, you guys aren't writers. I. I <laughs> Are you kidding me and they gave my rate and they got mad. It was and I was just like, I don't think you understand I've been doing this for 20 years. There's
2: there's a reason that I'm I'm good at it cuz I've worked hard to get here Um, So I've been writing my column and I actually was approached on Twitter About writing the book. I was like one of the questions. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Wait a second back Okay, so this is the art of the book deal right here in social media. Here we go the the book deal Gabriella.
2: So I'd I would to I mean, s- to point at
0: you—that that, that made, did that put you on the spot? I shouldn't have. St- all right, I'm sorry. Um, we'll go <clears throat> the book deal by Gabriella, and you put on your radio voice for this one.
2: I don't have a radio <laughs> voice. I'm messing with you. <laughs> Goddess forbid. Um, so I, one of the questions I I would get all the time for my column was, I'm I need a witchcraft. I don't know where to start. What books do you recommend? Yeah. And I was at this point. I I was in training at Hello Giggles. This it was. I remember it was February 28th. We had just had a powerful eclipse. I just turned 23, and I was driving. And I looked at my phone. and Somebody was like, "What you know? Like blah blah blah. What books do you recommend?" And I was like, "I could I could fucking write this book. Like I get this question all the time. Like I should I could just write this book." And then I like get to work and I'm ch- I check Twitter and. I have an editor reach out to me asking me to follow her about a question, and I'm like, okay, I'm like, accept the question. She's like, hi, Gabriella, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm at eBerry and um, eBerry Random House, blah, blah, blah. I love your column. I love your work for Broadly and your column for Nylon. Have you ever thought about writing a book, book about witchcraft? And I was just like, holy fucking shit. And I like, remember, it was like, I was at work, so I, I couldn't like scream, but I like, Freaked down, like ran and called my mom. and Then I was like, ah! and, like started screaming, and then I said, yeah, and I put together a proposal. And then they made. Okay,
0: it. so in, so in between that, in between um, getting the yes and then putting together pr- the proposal, the, putting together a proposal is a lot harder than most people think.
3: Yeah. It's,
0: so so. How did you did you like? What what do you do when you're trying to put together a book proposal? when you have the offer or or essentially uh, we're looking at this.
2: Yeah. Well, first, okay, I should go back a step. I, the publisher's in the UK and I have like a family friend who had published a book a long time ago and she's like, you need an agent, you need an agent. So my mom is an angel, shout out Sylvia, love you. And she stepped in and became my momager and like I was working full time. So she helped me and like, I got this like huge book of like authors, in, like, the, whatever, like, the Reader's Digest, like, or Agents, agent book. Oh, really? They have, like, a whole yeah, list. Yeah. And so I did yeah. that, and, like, I had already had the offer, so, I mean, I was like, I know that, like, that's obviously going to be more attractive, but I had to find an agent. Right. I found my agent, Jill Maher. Very
0: smart. Okay, so, um, so you just went to, like, a, a, a book. You you didn't you did you didn't have friends who were in the bi- the, 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 the writing industry I to help it you. it
2: was, like, I looked at, like, a book, or I, like, Googled it or something, yeah. but, um... Wow. Yeah. It was and then, like my mom called like I think like seven or eight people and then yeah. we like interviewed people and then I, I let and my agents great so.
0: they Isn't it crazy how much even if you have a book people don't realize oh if I get a publisher then I just get published and it's like no you have to have an agent through the process. I the mean, process yeah. is huge.
2: I, I definitely feel like it's possible to do it without. I'm personally so glad I have representation especially because it's foreign so. You know, like negoti—it it just makes all the things more complicated because it's like, it's a totally even the currency is different. Yeah. So, it definitely, yeah. I got my agent and then I had to put together this proposal and, honestly.
0: Okay, and then you and then the proposal. So, how many sleepless nights did you have on that proposal?
2: <laughs> honestly, like, I don't like to um, procrastinate, okay. so I plan like to the, I I, I'll talk about this after. if we're going in chronological order, but (laughs) I think I just, like, dedicated, like, a weekend to it, like, honestly. And I think I worked probably just, like, all day, like, taking breaks and stuff, but, like, I was... I don't remember being particularly stressed out because, because I... I knew what I needed to cover. Like, I'm not writing a novel. I'm not writing, like, characters. I'm not thinking of, like, a storyline that has to make sense. I've been practicing this for so long, and I've had this column where people literally ask me questions about witchcraft. I knew that I wanted to include fashion and glamour magic. I knew that I needed to include astrology and tarot and crystals because of my publisher. I knew that I wanted to include the holidays of the witch and working with the moon. Like, all of these things are things I already... I've been, I've been practicing, so it really was just, like, getting together. I think the proposal is, in a way, the hardest part, but it's also the easiest because, like, I ha- once I gathered my ideas and fleshed out how it's going to be organized, from then on, writing this book, I already had a game plan of what I was yeah. going to do. Yeah. But it, was, it wasn't, I don't know, it was like I was just, I think I was just so excited. The hard part was I had to do a sample chapter and I had to do the first chapter and, like, when I first turned my the first edit of that in, my, my editor was like, this isn't, like, I want to hear your voice. Uh-huh. You know? Like, you're the one that needs to come through. Like, I was oh, quoting a editor. lot of people, yeah. and she's like, I don't want to have, like, a lot of heavy quotes from other people. Like, this is you. And I think that realization, that, like, that was, that was, like, a big, that was hard for some reason. Yeah. But um, the proposal was, I think, like, I don't know. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't a struggle, thankfully.
0: Sounds like you had a great editor because the editor knew what to tap. I, I mean, yeah. if I read it and it came, and it was hitting with all these quotes, I would have felt a little heavy to me, but it was, it was just like just, yeah. she knew what to do. She yeah. got your voice.
2: Yeah, and, like, I'm writing for, like, young women, so, which is my which is age. Me. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> which is you. We're all young women at yeah. heart in some way. But, like you know it was I think for me that was just like a, a thing of being like I'm not like me who me you want me like yeah. you want my voice Wow. so it was a thing gotcha. of more of like worthiness versus anything else where I was like why like that's I don't know but yeah my editor Laura was really great she was an amazing editor
0: so I I always tell my students I'm like you are always going to feel like an imposter on every single book and that's it's just like I have I've had like authors come in who have best-selling novels and screenplays and they they still they always say when the blank page is there they're like they're gonna find out I'm a fraud and I did the same thing I do it constantly I just I'll I'll turn in my 600th article and I'll feel like they'll be like oh this is going to be the time they're going to find out they're gonna know so it's really cool that uh, you felt that I don't think that ever goes away I think
2: I know I don't think it has either I think I feel like I definitely get that way often but it's since the book came out here it's been so so much less I had like such a great and receptive um, like Reading, opening, launch at Skylight when it came out, yeah. and like I'm so sad,
0: I that was in September. Yeah, September. I
2: just missed it. Aw, It's okay, no worries. I'll hopefully have more, more stuff, more books. But yeah, I
0: lo- I mean, I live right by Skylight. I'm, I'm there all the time. That's
2: yeah. Um, but I like answered questions, and I felt I remember feeling like I answered them like really well, and like it, like since then my imposter syndrome has definitely been way down. But I also feel like a fucking fake most of the time. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. I still have to Google shit sometimes. Like, I don't know. I feel like that doesn't go. I'm glad that's reassuring that it's not just me.
0: Well, I think the thing is, is the pro- it's, it becomes a problem when people f- feel like they're not imposters and they have all the answers. And then that's when it scares me because those are the people I don't yeah. want to talk to because we learn until we die I hope
2: oh yeah. You know? oh yeah I like I've never fucked with perfection I'm not interested in her I just like don't care because I'm I want to grow and learn up and yeah up until I die I'm never gonna be I'm never gonna ha- I'm never gonna know it all I'm never gonna have all the answers and I don't want to because that's boring yeah. then what's past that so
3: yeah
0: and a few weeks ago so I actually pulled out the cards and I was like sh- shuffling them you know, finally pulled them out. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just shuffle these or whatever. And then I'm going about my night. And then the next morning, um, I'm like, where the hell are my shoes? So I find my shoes. So I go to put them on. And one had a card in it. It was the King of Cups.
2: Oh, my gosh. What's yeah. your sign? Cancer. So yeah. Cancer is a water sign. I'm King of Cups is like, that's... That's like one of like the cancer's cards because it's cups. So like each of the um, zodiac signs have an element, earth, air, fire, water. Uh Each of the tarot, there's four suits in the tarot. Coins, which are earth, um, wands, which are fire, cups, which are water, and swords, which are air. So king of cups, that's like such a beautiful omen that's like you know king energy very archetypal strong masculine grounded but cups is like the suit of emotions it's the suit of the heart cancer super sensitive very psychic oh, oh, I hate myself for so it, <laughs> but like but you're that like energy is king like king of cups is like having the the boundaries to allow yourself to like feel and ruling and living from like that place that's just like such a beautiful thing to find is that a card that you pulled that night
0: no i i wasn't even pulling cards i was just kind of looking at them and it was in my shoe it ended up in my shoe somehow
2: all kind of like folklore and magic of chanting and chanting and charming shoes
0: you know what i okay so here's something that always scared me like especially the first time i got my tarot card read other than then like satan and his demons were going to come and attack me and take me up to a you know hell or whatever <laughs> I'll send you that story. But um all right, all right, yeah, yeah. Um but um what if I pull the wrong card? That's what that's what used to scare me. Um what are your thoughts on yeah, cuz yeah, you just shook your head like, "Tony, come on, give me a break." So the, but but I used to be scared to pull the wrong card. So what what is your advice on that?
2: There is no wrong card. There's no wrong card. There are cards in the tarot that are darker that are more you know harder to deal with some of the sword cards like the nine and ten of swords are they hurt the the tower is often scary for a lot of people for me the five of pentacles is just like being stuck but um there's there's always first off if you ever have that reaction when you pull a card that's when the journaling comes in take a second be like why what what am i feeling and why am i feeling that because often, like the tower is, it looks like you know this tower is on its on its hinges, and there's people falling out of of the tower, and it looks like things are going to collapse. But really, it's like yes, these you know it can be a kind of in the middle of some kind of like upheaval or negativity or you know trauma even or th- where things are really shaken up. But a lot of the time, it's like these things are falling, so you can start and rebuild from like a really strong base foundation if the tower isn't on on something that's supporting it then it's just gonna crumble so it's an opportunity to grow and I feel like the death card is one one of my personal favorites that a lot of people that are coming from like not um not a pagan tradition or not an Eastern tradition or just not understanding the tarot have a really warped sense of what death means and the tarot death doesn't mean anybody dying like barely ever you know maybe if somebody's Wait, barely
0: You said barely Barely,
2: because I mean if if you're about if somebody's really sick and you read the tarot and you pull death, you know, or if somebody's just passed away and you pull death, it can be literal. But 99 percent of the time, it's going to be that something is ending and something's beginning. And this can be a cycle right now. Like if we're thinking we just had the new moon in Sagittarius early, like late, late, late last night. And it's the last new moon of the year. And all these cycles are coming to close and we're going to this new year. And you know, whether that's something like that, or a relationship or something on a personal level, like death is just like one door closing and something ending for something else to begin. It's not actually something dying. And in that is this like really potent chance for us to like grow and learn and evolve from the ashes like a Phoenix. So, and even five of pentacles, which is the card that I'm scared of or don't like or whatever. It's like, there's always a resistance before an upgrade, so like when we go through an evolution or before a book comes out, or before we do something that scares us, there's always gonna be resistance because it's easy to stay in what's comfortable. And you know, a snake probably is very uncomfortable before it sheds its skin, you know? I'm sure that doesn't feel good. So just like recognizing that before the expansion comes that kind of like resistance, can help you recognize that the cards aren't me and they're just offering some medicine and some insight to the situation. Like they're just little mirrors. So when we when we're triggered by that or when we feel when we feel hurt or scared, then it's like a really beautiful opportunity to use these cards to dive into why we're feeling that way, which yeah. is in my opinion what they're for. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. No, that was great and I feel like as I continue to learn just like about my human path as well as this, that that we're really resilient and we need the struggle and we need those weird spots because something usually comes out of it that's pretty cool.
2: Exactly, I mean, it's like there's no, you're not gonna know what sweetness is without bitterness. Unfortunately, like if you wanna have the full expanse of human emotions that are bliss and pleasure and love and happiness, if you want to open up yourself to that depth, then you're going to have to open up yourself to the depths of sorrows and hurt and pain. Like it's, you know, life isn't, uh, isn't linear. It's a series of peaks and valleys, like yeah. a, like a heartbeat. Like there's just going to be moments of struggle. But the ter- that's the, that's also the journey of the tarot, where you go through all of this and you come out stronger. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, that's, um, and that's, I, I, I'm always reading books about the brain. About um, about about gut reaction and the gut brain. I, I don't know if it, I go nuts over that. And yeah, I um, and and then also uh, adding this element to it where we can connect with, you know, whatever we're connecting with. Uh, you, it's it's like a, we're connecting with. Um, I, I feel like a universe. Like the, the your beliefs on like universal energy. I think that kind of like mirrors what I believe now. Even though I used to believe in this deity that was gonna you know beat the crap out of me if I <laughs> did certain things.
2: I mean, that's, and unfortunately, that's a lot, a lot of people believe that, that we I mean, if almost any patriarchal religion, even for me, growing up in a really, you know, like reformed Jewish household, it was like, God is a man in the sky. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily, I don't, I think it was, you know, it was a different, man, not a different man in the sky, but I, I personally identify as pagan, so I believe in different gods and goddesses. But at the end of the day, I think that we're we're all reflections of the divine, and the divine is not human, and we are never going to understand it completely. And that's why we put human faces on it, right? Like that's for me why I worship different aspects of the divine in different in different incarnations because it's hard to to worship something that's so much greater than we are. But I think that. We're all praying to the same thing. We're all holding on to a different piece of the elephant, thinking we have the same elephant. Oh, that dog is so beautiful.
3: Yeah.
2: And you know, I think that everybody deserves to see themselves in whatever that they think is divine.
0: That blows my mind because that's the same the same shit I think about because, because um, I I it drives me nuts when people have to have a face on it or um or people I'm. Personally, you know, it's like, I don't, I grew up preaching the Bible. So I was like knocking on doors as a kid. That's yeah. I, I had no, I you're,
2: you were talk about like, I mean, think about how many like programs or how many things culture is programmed into us. Like that's, you were literally, that's what you were taught.
3: Right. You oh, know, that was it. yeah.
2: You can't get angry at yourself for that. I get it. No,
0: yeah, yeah. And then, but then there's people who, when they leave that, then all of a sudden there's like, I'm atheist. There is no God, and I'm like, you're still preaching to me. It hurts. Don't do that. Where, when, when we accept, hey, you know what? We're we're humans. There's there. Yeah, there is something bigger than us. And why, why? What's this whole thing about putting a face on it? You know. That's, that.
2: You don't have to understand it if you want to understand it, and it helps you to honor. You know, to honor it by. Making it into something that you get, sure. But like when we start, when we, when we create a, a, an Almighty God that is like a human, like like the Christian God, I'm just like you're missing yeah. you're missing the point of it because it's all love. That's it. It's all and, love energy. Exactly.
0: And it really messes with people who have gray beards. I mean, you know, like the Jehovah thing.
2: So it's, it's- but, yeah. <laughs> I know.
0: Smash cut. I tried to make a joke. Didn't work.
2: It took me a second. I just can't stop looking at how beautiful the palm trees look above us. Hey. <laughs> so beautiful! It really is such a beautiful day today. It was like disgusting and rainy yesterday. Now it's not smoggy and it's clear. So I'm just enjoying it.
0: Yeah. Oh. Why was now? I ask myself, why wasn't I as enlightened as you when I was 24? Oh my God!
2: I've had a lot of help along the way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, what, what is? It, what are some of your uh, your gurus or people who have helped you along? the... Oh,
2: that's a great question. Um, I'm currently wearing a shirt that says, or a sweatshirt that says Chakra Paris, which is like a knockoff of a, a Celine sweatshirt by. Um, it was a collaboration by the Numinous, so that's run by Ruby Warrington, and she's been one of my like mentors. Um, the first place I ever I ever freelanced and pitched for was her website, and um, she really fostered my curiosity about spirituality and style, and um, she and one of my other friends and teachers, Alexander Roxo, started Moon Club, which is like an online mentorship ritual program for women that's based around the cycles of the moon. And I've done a lot of work with them, um, but they're definitely two of my teachers. I've been studying at, you know, House of Intuition? Have you yeah, heard of that? Yeah, yeah. So on Silver Lake, they have um, like a whole temple of intuition where they do classes and rituals. And one of the women that works there is named Naha. And um, she's been one of my teachers and I really love her. I was just on her YouTube channel last week. Her book came out. If you like crystals, it's called Everyday Crystal Rituals. It's great. Um, All right, I gotta talk to her. Who, yeah, she's fucking dope. Um, yeah. She's ma- she's a, a magical goddess. I've had a, so, I feel like I've had so many teachers. Honestly, like, who else? Um, one of my friends, Caitlin Kerrhart, is Alexander Rockson and I, she, we were in a, that was like my, we were a practicing coven for like a while. So I feel like I've learned a lot from them. Um, uh,
0: oh, and then um. So, what is a practicing uh, coven? Can you explain that? So,
2: cru- a coven is a group of witches that work together, practice together. So, for us, it was like we'd meet on the solstices or the full moons or the new moons, and we'd do rituals and magic together. Yeah. Um, I feel like all the all my friends. I'm like constantly learning from all of my friends. A lot of, of books. I feel like I'm gonna go home and be like, I have all these people that have helped me that I've forgot. To yeah,
0: don't worry, this isn't the Oscars. You'll get, you know. <laughs> Um, Where music plays you off before you do your parents
2: <laughs> right oh my god I can't imagine no thank you I've never if there's one thing I've never wanted to be it's an actress and thank God at that cuz I suck at acting
0: yeah is it is part of that because you grew up in LA or is that um,
2: well, I, so I grew up I mean I, I say I'm from LA but I grew up in grew Atlanta, Atlanta yeah. no I think it's just cuz I'm 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 not good at memorizing stuff and I don't want to be anybody else I like being myself
3: yeah
0: Oh um oh, I'm just gonna smash cut here. Have you watched the TV show Atlanta? Uh, Donald Glover.
2: I need to watch like, the first couple episodes. I feel like I need to binge it.
0: Yeah. Oh, it is so good. I. It's like I watch that and I'm just like, oh man, just how he nails the tone, of just sad, tragic comedy where we don't need a we don't need a laugh every 15 seconds. And that's just when I'm just like, oh, just we can laugh at the the lunacy of the overall arc instead of being you know like dun-dun-dun-ksh, dun-dun-dun-ksh.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay I'll have to watch it yeah. and I miss Atlanta so I'll probably be I don't know maybe it'll make me feel better or worse who knows I'm not sure
0: it's, it's such a good show. I think you I think you'll feel good about it it's um and then, yeah we got on Atlanta and then it's just it's so intriguing and living in LA because like a lot of uh, not all I mean some actors are so good at their craft or I just I'm like sitting there going wow Amy
2: Adams Amy Adams. my yeah. sister she yeah, yeah. she's amazing I yeah. feel like she's one of those people that I'm like I just watched sharp objects have you seen uh, that no, <gasps> it. it's so I think it's, H, okay. it's HBO so I, got to binge.
0: I binge on sharp objects you do Atlanta Okay. All right.
2: it's really good Amy Adams is like you forget she's a good actress because she she's just she's not acting she's amazing I love her. Yeah. Who else? But yeah, I feel like I just like rather watch actors. Tilda Swinton, another one. Oh, yeah. She's a fucking oh, queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I rather just watch, I rather just watch, oh, look, a beautiful raven just flying by. Hi. Um,
0: We're all Edgar Allan Poe right now.
2: I rather just watch people act than try to do it myself. Yeah
0: you're very aware of your surroundings as we've as we've been talking you're
2: different. I'm sorry like, I'm bad at eye contact and also vaguely distracted all at the same time but well I
0: don't helps I, what's that?
2: it helps me concentrate
0: yeah no I just find it intriguing because I really it's it's just about being totally present
2: oh thank you I try yeah. Yeah.
0: and that's I mean like people ask me like one time I was I was gonna interview you know Some big-time famous writer that's way more huge than me, and they, you know, and they go, "Do you have any questions? Do you have your questions already?" I'm like, "I don't even know what I'm gonna say. It's because I never do. I just, I like just diving in, and then if I make a fool of myself, great, and then if it sounds all right great, you know."
2: Yeah, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle as far as like being on podcasts. I don't really care. Like I'll people,
0: you care about this one.
2: I care. I care. (laughs) But, like, people, I You'll mean, people ask me about, people ask me the same questions all the time. Like, I don't need to rehearse. Oh, that, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I'm, I know, I feel like, I just feel more confident in knowing what I'm talking about. But when I'm interviewing other people, it depends. If it's, like, a specific, per, if it we're talking about a specific thing, then I'll have some questions. But I think, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. I get I get both. I get it. Your process to you.
0: Oh, I know it's terrible. When I used to do you know 400, 400 word uh, articles for the Chronicle, I would interview for an hour and a half. Well, I for print, you know.
2: then it's like you got like three I don't that's how much like a page of not even like a, like a page well, of text. Page. Yeah. It's like that. The, the difficult, I feel like for me, the hard part is writing less, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really, I'm like always like that's so many words, and I, I go so much more every time. Yeah.
0: So. Oh, I, I prefer, yeah, I prefer them to go under 4000 Then And I'm like, okay, I can do that.
2: Right.
0: Do you know, um, which is what this is funny, one of the best people I've freelanced for is Penthouse Magazine. Can you believe that?
2: That's kind of awesome, honestly. Yeah. What did you write for them?
0: Uh, I did a profile on Buzz, for the lead singer of the Melvins. And then, um, what was the other one? Oh, Irvin Welsh, who wrote Train Spotting.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah.
3: And
0: it was the easiest seven hundred fifty bucks um, it took me like three hours to just interview them and then it was done and then they pulled all the photos did everything on their end and it just looked sexy but the funnest part of that was making my mom go buy a penthouse in San Francisco so she had to go get she had to go get pornography in order to find my work
2: honestly that's fucking dope <laughs>
0: Because my, my parents, you know, they made me Jehovah's Witness grow up, so then I'm like, okay, now, it, now it's your turn to... Are still
2: practicing Jehovah's Witness?
0: They're not practicing, no. But other members of my family are. They won't talk to me. So.
2: Well, I'm glad you have your parents, though.
0: Yeah, they're sweethearts. I think your parents are pretty cool, too, because you've been able to really express yourself and do what you do.
2: They're great. I mean, I feel like they just kind of now realize that I know what I'm doing and that it's working. Yeah. Um like I just got my nose pierced on Monday and I haven't told my mom and I'm just like Oh like, really? She I had this one for a long time but okay. I just got that one.
3: Yeah.
2: I'm just like you I'm I they they have all things I mean growing up my mom wouldn't let me buy books with the word witch in it. Really? So I think that's kind of like funny that I'm making her buy I've made her, you know, go and yeah. buy in her my book. But yeah, they all things considering they're great. Like they just I think are like like they recognize that I know what I'm doing and are like it's fine and I mean, my mom would probably prefer me to be like a little bit more conservative, but like I'm not, I'm not, so. Yeah.
0: Where did they have? Do they have a fear of witchcraft? When like, were they, like, because deep down they had maybe the, uh, you grew up a, uh, re- Jewish, yeah, so. Um right?
2: no, I think for my mom it was more of like in Mexico like Brujeria like, like even though a lot of people are more steeped in like the folklore, like for her, it was like, she still thought it was something negative, that it was gonna be hurting people and using negative spirits. It was more so that she was, she didn't know what, what it was and she was scared of it. Yeah. And that she never really gave me, she didn't, it took her a while to like really listen to me when I was being like, that's not what this is, it's what this is. So for her, I recognize it was like more cultural conditioning over like, over brujería, cause it's like, or over witchcraft, cause it, it's, definitely like people will fuck around more there in mexico you know in mexico just like more people it's it's there's a heavier it's it has more baggage that word has more baggage than here mm-hmm. where we either think of like hollywood witches or like the craft or like the salem witch trials so i think it was just like a little different but they get it now like they're chill and they um my mom's a witch she's like finally starting to call herself one but i'm like kind of yeah she's been like working with crystals and like doing mantras and setting intentions and like astral traveling like she like i give her spells to do so she'll she's coming around that's
0: cool what's astral traveling
2: it's like meditating when you when you move through like different energetic realms well for her it wasn't necessarily Moving through energetic realms with like your ethereal body, so not like your physical body. She did astral travel, but she did have like an out of body experience and has like seen her like, like with like spirit guides and stuff. So, wow. She's a witch.
3: Yeah.
0: And um, and also you talk about karma in the book, and not not not, not only karma, but also um, there are there are, you can cast try to cast spells that are negative on others, but it. Okay, I'm about tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, because this could be. Me with my bad memory, but if you if you try to do something that uh, would project hurt on somebody, you're actually you better be ready because something's coming yeah. back. Or it, am I right on that? Uh, I mean,
2: okay.
0: Karma. Completely correct me.
2: Karma is like it's karma. It's you know like it's gonna things come back to you if you hurt somebody. It's gonna come back to you. Yeah. I think that I don't think it's cool to mess with other people's free will, mm-hmm. um, and it's unethical and I think that there are you know you can energetically protect yourself and if somebody's hurting you there's like ways to like bind their energy to like stop them from hurting you but as far as like directing hurt and malevolent energy at people I like barely I don't recommend it I think there are certain cases where magic needs to be used for like justice when the larger when it's to stop somebody from harming more people I think it's really case by case Um, do you know who Damian Eccles is? Mm-hmm. He um, was a he was on death row for like years as part of like the West Memphis Three. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And he just came out with a book called High Magic, which is um, different ceremonial oh, magic. Uh, oh, I gotta read that. Different ceremonial magic practices and how they saved his life when he was on death row. He was oh, doing yeah. these practices. Uh, That's it's, such a crazy story. He's Incredible. I met him He I, rec- I met him and had him sign my book and like gave him my book and he it was yeah. really cool He's oh. amazing, but he um
0: How was that experience to, to go to, to meet one of your heroes and go? Here's my book. Let's exchange books and then you're signing a book for them.
2: Yeah, it was really weird um, I haven't read any of his other stuff, yeah. but I just am like I think he is such His story is so amazing and it's just such a testament to the human spirit and magic and like I like when I have like a mutual, I know like one of my, oh, one of my like mentors, Teresa Reed, the tarot lady, if you need tarot, and if you need more guidance with tarot, she's literally your lady. I'll, uh-huh. I'll give you her, her info, but she's been one cool. of my like mentors and she knows him and yeah. I went up to him with the book and he was like, I know you and it was like, oh, oh, like I know Teresa Reed. He's like, oh my God, I love her. She used to send me tarot cards when I was on death row 20 years ago. Like oh. Teresa's an, oh, she's a, she's a goddess. and. Okay. I was like, oh, that's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had him sign my book. I was like, also, can I give you a copy of my book? He's like, oh, that's like, that's how I know you. And like, recognize me from my book. That was, it was so fucking, it was, that was like really crazy. And he was like, can you sign it for me? So like, I always kiss books when I sign them. So like, sign it and kissed it and like gave it to him. And it was cool. But he's, I've been slowly reading it. And I'm like, actually learning this path of magic with Naha from House of Intuition. So it's kind of this perfect timing and he stated this is just such a beautiful way of explaining it, but you your auric field. When you, when we first started you asked about your aura. Yeah. Whenever you're doing a spell, whatever you're doing is transmuting through your personal energetic field. So if you're doing if you're doing magic that's negative or harmful to somebody, you're literally bringing that and channeling that through yourself before you send it out to somebody else. So, you know, karma, that's definitely gonna come back, but just like that energy, like do you really want to to put yourself through that? So right. That, like, idea of charge, like, moving through, you know, like, connecting to the universe, having the energy, like, move through you and it being negative, like, I just thought Damien put it into, put that into perspective in a really cool way. So, um, I don't, yeah, I don't fuck with hurting other people. I I think that it's necessary sometimes. I won't casually do it, you know, to each his own, but it's not my thing
0: and it's and the energy of I, I so i learned a little bit about like there there's like energy medits there's this woman her name's donna eden and she she's she's kind of goofy but she's she has these like energy things that you can you know even just the way you move your hands on your body and whatever but it does change energy and i live in san francisco i lived in a place called the tenderloin which is kind of like a really high crime area so i started doing her work she had the zip up thing that you across your body that you do and when i did that it 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 felt like the people that were coming up to harass me were not breaking into my energy feel and it it was it worked every time it freaked me out
2: that's the thing so like our auric fields like they get holes in them we have to patch them up so you can you know there's different ways to do that I love that it was like imagining was like imagine like you're zipping that up like your energetic field up
0: from like the root shopping.
2: yeah so like another visualization that I do when I'm like scared or stressed or angry or feel like people are sending me negative vibes is I'll imagine a giant sphere like a mirrored sphere just like encircling me and first off just like this idea of like a beautiful like totally mirrored ball just like human size just like in random places like right now like i love that visual i think it's kind yeah. of beautiful and i just imagine that any negative energy is being directed back or right. being reflect deflected out of my auric field and all the good energy is being kind of like transmuted through this beautiful crystalline structure and coming to me yeah. so it's the same thing you know like these our mind is really powerful and visualizations and meditations and energetic practices even when it's 2 minutes that that moment of intentionality is so so powerful. Yeah.
0: And I I just feel like we don't even know what our brains are doing and what we're tapping into but just to allow it to be then we're pulling it in.
2: Recognizing that you're never going to know all the answers and being okay with that. Yeah. And that it doesn't matter if it, if it does, does it does it really matter do you really need to know how it works if it works? Right. Exactly.
0: Unfortunately, they used to say the same shit, in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or like, "Where are?" And but now I understand it in a completely different but, way.
2: You know, like you do, you need to understand how infinite the universe. Like, do you need to understand the inner workings of the universe to trust that the energetic rituals you do are going to protect you? You know what I yeah. mean?
0: Yeah, it's. I don't need to know quantum physics to know that everything's working right now.
2: Yeah. Um, Even
0: though I want to, because I have a little bit of a, a control issue.
2: Um. Another author I really like named Mitch Horowitz came out with a book called The Miracle Club, and it's all about like new thought, which is like law of aff- like law of attraction, like mind like mind spiritual practices of like manifesting with your mind. But it's in such you should I feel like oh, yeah. you should do that because it's yeah. like it's like it's like David Lynch approved. So it's okay. it's it's really interesting. It's like mantras and intentions and how are like. How we really have the power to manifest whatever we want, but there is there is a structure to it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: So and the, I I got to revisit the West Memphis Three because I remember maybe fifteen years ago or I don't even where in San Francisco they were doing benefits for them. So I was doing the coverage of the people doing benefits for them.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was literally on death row in solitary confinement for like fifteen to twenty yeah. years. It's crazy. He's amazing. Yeah. Like I. It's yeah. The mind is a powerful thing.
0: Yeah, it it shows it shows the resilience there, and then the the also the rewards of of um you know if we can look at it if we're in the middle of suffering, there is reward. We get to look at people like him or Nelson Mandela or whatever.
2: Yeah, exactly right. Like that sometimes that's like the hero's journey of some going through something really intense and coming out the other side and like using it as a way to like help others or teach.
0: And I love that you use the word hero's journey. That's all, I mean, my whole, everything I work on and everything I teach is the hero's journey, essentially the Joseph, I don't know if you know Joseph Campbell, where um, it's, I mean, when I'm working on screenwriting or I'm working on books or we're working on character work, everything's the hero's journey. And then I re- relate it to my life and I'm like, what chapter am I on in my hero's journey? I don't know if you have similar.
2: I... I, I don't know where I am. Yeah. I'm just. like... You're in an
0: earlier chapter than me.
2: That's for sure. Yeah, she's just. I'm just. I'm. I'm just going with the goddesses' flow. I'm like. Yeah. I'm here for you, girl. Yeah. Do what you need with me. I'll. Yeah.
0: But but your journey's pretty cool so far. I mean, yeah. It's you know the.
2: It's yeah. been so fun. I'm so thankful. I'm like. I mean, honestly, like. The fact that I get to make a living or, you know, make. A career on writing about witchcraft and spiritual practices. Like, my dad's parents were both in concentration camps. Like, yeah. I'm really Jewish. I, I, my, I, like, people are still dying around the world for yeah. being accused of being witches. Yeah. Be Thousands really? of people have.
0: Oh, I, I didn't know that. What, what parts of the world? Um, I'm in my LA bubble. My, LA, my, my my California bubble is so bad, I don't even know what's going on in the other part I mean, the of the state.
2: parts of Africa and. Wow. I think, I think in South America, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's South America is just being wiped out by, because the indigenous people are just dying because of the rainforest shit. There's right. so the whole other set of issues with witchcraft and, but um, yeah, I mean there's like witch hunts, people be, being accused of witchcraft. There, it still can be like a death sentence, um, and thousands of people have died for being accused of witchcraft. So I, you know, it's, to be able to do this work is a privilege. So yeah. I'm just like, every day I gotta. Wake up and like write about this shit and just like be able to share. I'm just so thankful for it. So.
0: And um and you're you're turning 25 when? February.
2: Two 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 two.
0: Two two. That's an awesome birthday. Yeah,
2: twin. So there's two of us. Whoa.
0: Does that mean does that mean anything or is that just awesome? Uh, randomly.
2: Um. So we're actually really premature. We were supposed to be. Ba- we were seven weeks early. So I feel like it means something. My sister's the one that was, like, ready to come out of the womb, though. I was, like, chilling. I was, like, about, yeah, I would have been, my astrology for, like, my due date would have been horrible. So I think Alex saved us a little bit. But um, I I mean, I I love it. I love that I'm two two, And I was born on 94, so I'm, like, that's, I don't know. I, I don't think there's such thing as a coincidence. So I just, I'm like, I see the synchronicity there. I was born on a holiday called Impulk, which is... The like, which is like, it's on Groundhog Day. It's the day that like between the um the winter solstice and the spring equinox. So it's halfway between that, and it's um the day when like the Earth is starting to wake up before spring and like the it's the it's called Candle Mass, and it's like the fe- like the holiday of lights. So like, I love my birthday. I feel like the goddess was like, yes, here you go. So now
0: 1994 is a big year for me too. Yeah, because I because that's, I'd been, I finally was able to read books that weren't like Bible based. So that's how I kind of got my love, it, it, like novels like seriously saved my life or I may have been hanging from a tree in the wrong way. But, um, but I decided I read, um, that's when I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and I decided, oh wait, I think I should travel. And so I was booking my trip to Paris with my friend and I had no idea why I would ever go there because you would only go if you were a missionary in the Jehovah's Witnesses. But I was just doing it. And so that was, so when you, when you were being born, I was probably on the phone booking my ticket to- That's
2: amazing, so you're, all, you're being reborn. Do you th- oh wow, that's an intriguing, yeah.
0: Because like you, you'd say that year and I'm like, oh my God, I have so many points on that year of what stuff that happened.
2: Yeah. I just, I like, I last for the full moon, two weeks ago I did this like I wrote this ritual of like naming of creating like a goddess or god kind of like archetype of yourself like what would you rule over oh, and yeah. then the ritual was like a writing ritual of creating like a like your own kind of hero's journey so yeah. I feel like you're like if you were to do that like part of that for you would be in 1994 like that's that's when you were reclaiming your life you know or that's when you were claiming it because you you were thinking for yourself that's so cool
0: it was the beginning and then I made a lot of really you know sad decisions along the way but at the same time
2: that's part of the mythology yeah exactly
0: and we're all in our own mythology on this
2: yeah and that's the thing I feel like we're oh wow a palm front just oh wow and like five ravens just flew by a murder of crows (laughs) actually literally yeah there they go that's so funny um mythology what were you talking what was i
0: have no idea i'm going to ask you the important questions now what kind of music do you like
2: <laughs> like rock some punk shit like random shit from like 2012. Right? Why, why
0: 2012 in particular
2: it was like metalcore music was really big and I was yeah. really into it when I was like in high school What,
0: what,
3: what bands were big
2: then? Oh, I don't even want to name the bands. Aww. It's just they're like Aww. really shitty bands There's this one band from Georgia called Woe Is Me that was like
0: Yeah, I love the name. Was, that feels like my life
2: Was this like call it was this like <laughs> a specific era of music that was like I was like really into like Like that was like the coolest thing I could have done in Georgia and I did it okay. and it was like fun But
0: what what kind of punk bands
2: I love the Sex Pistols. I know that people don't like them, but I love, I mean, who doesn't
0: like them? Why, who are they?
2: I don't know, but you've never actually listened to them. They're actually like the guitar on Nevermind the Bullocks. I mean, they're Sid Vicious sucked, but um, I'm a Johnny Rotten fan, and Steve Jones is a great guitarist. But I like,
0: you know, Steve Jones did bass on that too. Sid wasn't even in studio. No,
2: he, Sid killed himself on February 2nd on my birthday. Not on the year I was born, but before, yeah.
0: Um, I, uh, do you like Jonesy's Jukebox?
2: I haven't I haven't listened to it But no. I read his book And I really like it and Yeah I, I, What
0: was it? Lonely Boy
2: Yeah it's, He's such a witch I really want to be is. on his radio show And talk to him about witchcraft and fashion Because he's a fucking witch Yeah. Well,
0: he listens to Drinks with Tony all the time
2: Okay well no, he does Have me on your a thing
0: i i profiled him for the uh for the la times i got to hang out with him on the show and everything
2: yeah. he's so he seems like um he seems like he'd be funny to hang around but um, oh
0: amazing fella amazing and the and that book is i i, the, I, I yeah because I,
2: yeah. I,
0: I love a good one yeah. um because the sex pistols meant a lot to me when i found them i was just you know as a kid i was like what is this right. and um I was going to ask you something else regarding cuz we were, we were talking about sex pistols stuff. Anyway, but it's so cool you like the Sex
3: Pistols.
2: I yeah, so I, I really like them. I'm their manager Malcolm McLaren and Vivian yeah. Westwood opened up a store in London oh. called SEX. Oh, They're so She's like intricately tied yeah. with that and like I just yeah I'm obsessed with her and I really I really love them and the first day I went I like remember driving to my first day of internship with her like my sister drove me and I remember like listening to the Sex Pistols and like driving through Laurel Canyon it was really special but. Right now I'm listening to I, I've been listening to a lot of Lana Del Rey, which I'm trying to stop because she's just like sad and will put you in a weird mood. It feels into her pretty much. Uh-huh. I love Edith Piaf. That's like my writing oh, music. She's, she's amazing. Yeah. Um,
0: I visited her sa- her grave at Pere Lachaise in Paris.
2: I haven't done that yet. I really wanted to do that for my 25th birthday and was like I need to save up money so I can like live by myself first. Yeah, yeah. But I love her. and I'll do that soon. Um, who i have listening to a lot of Interpol. I was like, what? Who yeah, else? Yeah. Chelsea Wolfe. Oh yeah. She's I love crazy. her. Yeah. She's amazing. I think um, her, I may
3: have
0: profiled her like she's 15 dope. years ago. Yeah.
2: She's cool. Um, who else have I been listening to? I love Arctic Monkeys. I just like, like like random shit. I'm not. I love music, but I'm not like uh, I'm not I'm not like a yeah, music person, unfortunately. So I know, was I don't it know anything.
0: was it Sex Pistols the first punk that you
3: heard?
2: Um. No, I mean, like I like listen to like other you know like the Ramones and the Clash and stuff, oh, but like not right. like a shit ton, like not. That's a, that's oh, like, that's
0: no, like no my way. that's like old people. That's like older than me, punk rock. But I still love it.
2: I I yeah. I feel like the the Sex was like the first like seventies punk that yeah. I like listened to, and I'm still like not super well versed in like the whole era of music, honestly. No, it's a this isn't a
0: quiz. This is just having fun. <laughs>
2: yeah, they're
0: fun. Yeah, punk rock kind of saved my life. Um. As well, because when I was like 14, I there was this uh, radio show called Maximum Rock and Roll, and so after Bible study, I would listen to it on Tuesday nights. I would listen to it at nine o'clock on my headphones, and I was just like, "Oh my God, this is the demon music," but I kind of really mm-hmm. like it, and I'm like, I felt bad for liking it, and I like bands like Black Flag. I was like, I'm like going, "Oh," I, I just understood the rage. I didn't yeah. know what they were even talking about.
2: Yeah. yeah, I feel that. I feel like yeah. I. So, yeah. wasn't like cool enough to like listen to punk rock punk when I was like in high school but when I found it when I was like a little bit older I was still great. I listened to like a lot of like like I listened to like a lot of Paramore in like high school and like this that whole era of like punk, pop punk emo-ish music but I remember like when I used to listen to like screamo music when I, I like did it what, what,
3: what like,
2: like that's like the 2012 that was like emo-y, screen-y. I do don't even know. I just remember, like, I think it was like a Silverstein song, like the first song I listened to that was like, had screaming in it that I kind of liked and I was like, I feel like I shouldn't like this, but I like this. Huh.
0: I feel like you would like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds.
2: I feel like I, I just started watching Peaky Blinders and that's the theme song and like oh, I've heard like some, hand. I don't know the name, but I've heard some of his stuff and I like really like him. He's, he wrote a beautiful, somebody asked him about grief and he wrote this beautiful thing about grief and he just did a, like, curated a part of, like, a, a magazine called Another Man magazine that I really like. So, I need to listen to him. He's a, he's a vibe.
0: Yeah, well, his son died, like, a few years ago. That's yeah. where the grief came in,
2: yeah. Yeah, he wrote something really beautiful about that. I'll have to... You should read it. I uh, uh,
0: well, I... Yeah, uh, the, the red... Uh, he's been... Uh, the grief thing, I've... Yeah, I keep up on Nick. It's really weird, because in 1990, before you were born, that was, like, the first time i saw nick cave and i went oh my god the, that old dude i'm so glad i saw that old man before he died right and then like and now now he's he's in his 60s but at the time i was just like oh my god yeah yeah he was like he was like in his 30s and i'm just like i'm so glad i get to see him before he dies and then i would see him every tour and i'd be and then i'm just like oh wait i think he's sticking around." <laughs>
2: Yeah, he's still there. He's yeah. he's. I hope I I need to see him. I need like my. I'm, I'm really not well versed in his music, so I have something new to explore.
0: Yeah, well, you gave me so much new stuff to explore because I get yeah, So then I'm like, well, what? How can I get her back? Sure. All right, Nick Cave. You know, that's a good one. Like there's
2: just like so much music to listen to that I like. I forget what to listen to, yeah. and then it's nice being reminded of that. Yeah. So.
0: And then uh, any favorite authors that uh, you're into?
2: Oh yeah. Okay. I know
0: this is a hard question. It's I. It's. Yeah, that's a curveball
2: honestly I feel like my first other
0: love, than Tony Duchesne my
2: first fu- my first love is John Steinbeck I love yes. him yes. I feel like maybe it's like the California in me but like there's I like had, I read all the books I had to read in high school like I was one of those okay. people like I actually which is great because I like I read I love Frankenstein that book is so fucking good and I honestly really liked Crime and Punishment I read that whole really? thing you know, I
0: still need to read that
2: it's, like, fucked up, but it's intense. I remember really liking it. Um, but I read Grapes of Wrath, and it, like, changed my life. I was, like, just, it just, there's a, a line in, like, the fifth or sixth chapter that's my favorite that I still want to get tattooed on me one day. That is, and all of them were caught in something larger than themselves. Huh. And I feel like that was just, just, I love him. I read East of Eden. I read a lot of his stuff. He's, John Steinbeck is totally a witch. I thousand percent stand by that. He was pagan as fuck. Um, I love Patti Smith. I love her. I like. I. I feel like I've started reading herself like a year ago, but she's just like such a special soul. She's
3: beautiful,
2: yeah. Such a special soul. Um, I've started reading Eve Babbitts this year. Do you know her? I She's like a. She's a super iconic author from like the sixties and seventies in LA. She oh, yeah. grew up here. She has books called like, LA Women, Sex and Rage, Black Swan. Oh, oh I know
0: her. Sex and Rage, yeah.
2: Um Hollywood's e- Eve's Hollywood is really good yeah. and it's just like she,
0: we are the same publisher.
2: Really yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. That's she's she's really she was she's really dope. I really like her stuff and um, who else? I read so much nonfiction. I read so much nonfiction. Yeah. Um one of my friends, another teacher is Kristen Soleil, who wrote a book called um, lutz which feminist or feminist Slut, which sluts those three words are in it i never remember the order but yeah, it's yeah. about witchcraft and feminism and sex and an amazing amazing book um
0: i've never read steinbeck
2: he's great yeah. the way if you're you grew up in california yeah you Francisco, should read him yeah. he like he's a california person it's just the way he describes the land and the characters he creates and the depth in which he creates the characters is just unparalleled. Um, and, read East of Eden. Read.
0: Okay, and then uh, you said he's definitely a witch. So what what it, what is it that would uh, what is it that would make you say that?
2: So his his in in East of Eden, it's like he kind of okay. Well, there's a book called To a God Unknown which is one of his shorter books and it's about this man who like whose father dies and he's he feels his father's spirit leave his body and inhabit a tree and he starts leaving (sighs) offerings and starts like he starts leaving offerings at the tree and talking to the tree and communicating with the tree like it's his dad and like he puts like off like we'll like put like meat on the tree and like leave offerings and it's, it's this beautiful journey. And he ends up reconnecting to the land at the end. And it's so pagan. It's so fucking pagan. And then in um, The Winter of Our Discontent, there's this reoccurring motif of this crystal talisman that keeps beckoning this woman and she ends up like holding it one night and then there's this whole connection with the dad and one of the somebody is like had gone had been like locked up for practicing witchcraft in the family and reading tarot cards and in um, east of eden this like one of the men lee is from i think he's from china he's from asia and he's like studying like this the talmudic text with these rabbis and there's this crossover of like eastern and western religion and like understanding in depth and like the way he talks about the spirit of california i mean california is a land that is steeped in magic um yeah, right. like the energetic there's like the energetic like lines that run through like the hemispheres and stuff and like the energetic line that runs through like venice is like like is like one where there's like a ton of spiritual sites all over the world Um, San Francisco and LA there's a book called the occult history of California like San Francisco like was I mean huge spiritualist community there's so many psychics so much energy here so much I mean Lumeria like ancient lands were said to be here and the way that Steinbeck describes the spirit it's just so in touch I'm just like you might not have known you were a witch, but you're definitely pagan as fuck. So somebody pay me to write an essay about it. I want to fucking research it. Like, I feel like I have the receipts.
0: I would. That's my next question. I was going to ask you, do you feel like uh, Steinbeck was aware that he was a witch?
2: I think he was aware of energies. Yeah. I don't necessarily know if he was like a yeah. practicing well, witch. Yeah, you, just, you answered it before I even
0: asked. You're, you're just like, I don't think he knew, but he's pagan as fuck.
2: I take it for what it is.
0: I think that's great. Gabriella, sorry. Thank you so much for coming on Thank
2: the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening. That was Gabriella Herstick. Her book is called Inner Witch. Next up on the show, we have an interview from the Drinks with Tony archives featuring Wesley Strick. He is the producer of The Man in the High Castle and a very successful screenwriter. His novel, Out There in the Dark, was published in 2006, and I caught up with him when he was doing his promo for the novel. This is Drinks with Tony from the Archives with Wesley Strick.
1: The um, inspiration for the book came from uh, this anecdote that I heard about Douglas Sirk, the um, Hollywood director, um, who's famous for the movies he made in the 50s for Universal, um, like Imitation of Life and All That Heaven Allows. He made these big technicolor melodramas with people like Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. Um, that were sort of considered a little trashy in their day and then were rediscovered, I don't know, 10, 20 years later by critics and I think a lot of by sort of gay, gay uh, culture mavens who just re- found them kind of campy but wonderful because they're very emotionally out there and expressive, you know. Anyway, Cirque, I didn't realize, was a, a German originally from Berlin whose, whose name was Detlev Cirque. Um, he... Uh, had been very successful in the 30s uh, in in his home country, um, had a very prestigious, uh, co- you know, active career, but was um, ultimately sort of overwhelmed by the Nazi uh, stranglehold on the German film industry, and found it, you know, obnoxious and distasteful, and to say the least, and realized by about 1939 that he had to get the hell out of out of Germany. Um, what I discovered I was I, I didn't know any of this but I was driving to pick up my kids uh, you know in LA about, this is about three and a half years ago um, and listening to Elvis Mitchell's The Treatment you know the show on KCRW oh yeah yeah, I love his show yeah it's a great show and um, I, I always flip it on at 2.30 which is exactly when I leave the house to pick up the kids and t- his guest that day happened to be Todd Haynes and Haynes had just released Far From Heaven with the Julianne Moore Dennis Quaid movie and Far From Heaven was very much an homage, very consciously, to the work of Douglas Sirk. It looks like a Sirk movie. It sort of plays like one. And, and Elvis, of course, was asking him all about that, his love of Cirque, etc. And they, early on in the interview, they got on the subject of Sirk's life, which, as I said, I didn't know anything about. And in passing, um, Haynes mentioned the fact that when Sirk left Germany... He left behind a complicated personal life and a family situation. And I don't want to say exactly what it is because it was this major spoiler in, in the book. But it struck me as uh, something terribly tragic and haunting and sort of heartbreaking and beautiful at the same time. And this something I kind of not only had never heard of anything like this but could never have imagined it. And, you know, as a, as a storyteller, you're always looking for great stories. Uh, especially ones that are new and that sort of hit you with a certain amount of force. And the moment I heard him tell that little anecdote, and he, it, he just spent about a minute talking about it, I thought to myself, wow, there's a whole novel here. I mean, that was the, those were the words that flashed in my brain. But I'm not a novelist, or I wasn't then, and just um, a screenwriter. And so I thought, damn, I, uh, I, there's nothing I re- can really do with this. It. But it's great. Um, and it kept kind of coming back to me, haunting me, for months. Um, And there were times when I would sort of wake up in the middle of the night and think, can I turn this into a script or a movie somehow? And as much as I would have wanted to do that, because it suited my profession, uh, I couldn't. I I kept coming back to the realization that if it was anything, it was a book. And then uh, finally, maybe six months later... Um, was around the time of the Iraq uh, the beginning of the Bush beating the drums for the Iraq war and criticizing old Europe as he called France and Germany because those countries were not like excitedly jumping in you know uh, to our like democracy spreading <laughs> adventure and you know I thought that was a bunch of crap but I also thought it's interesting if you took this the Cirque character and sort of thought of him as old Europe, so to speak. In other words, that he brings a lot of historical baggage, blood, history, neurosis, all of that stuff um, to the table. And on the other side of it, um, you've got the American idea that Bush was sort of exemplifying, which is that we were you know, eternally young country. I mean, it's a delusion, but this is the American idea, that we're youthful and basically good. And nothing that we do in the world could possibly be for anything but uh, the betterment of mankind. Uh, And it's a wonderful delusion. You know, I guess you have to be a relatively young country to feel that way. But I thought, you know, maybe I could... uh, There really is a book here. If I took the Sir character and put him in opposition to that American principle of optimism and naivete and idealism. Um, And... uh, sort of let the sparks fly so, I, so I, then I started to kind of really put my nose to the grindstone, you know, conceptually trying to flesh that out so I'm thinking, alright, so it's Cirque in Hollywood, he's left Germany for personal and political reasons now he's let's say he's assigned to the same movie project as a somebody who represents that American principle, and, and the two of them find themselves in a fatal conflict so who would that guy be? I'm thinking historically. Well, if it's 1940 and we're in Hollywood, you know, it, the answer was right in front of my nose. It was Ronald Reagan, of course. Who else could it possibly been? Um, Reagan seemed absolutely perfect because he was here then. He was looking to become a movie star. You know, he was a sort of second banana. He had a lot more ambition than talent, uh, but he most certainly of probably any American in the 20th century. Uh, has come to symbolize the notion of American uh, optimism and uh, Boy Scoutism if you want to call it that uh, so I thought there's, there's something here if I simply um, disgu- you know, fictionalize them both disguise them uh, enough um, because in fact Cirque and Reagan never worked on a movie together I don't know if they ever even met but in my book they not only meet but get into a struggle that results in the destruction of w- one of them so that's really where the book came from
0: and I'm blanking on her name, Eleanor. Yeah, Eleanor Lustig,
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I really loved your description of her as pre, when during her kind of prepubescent uh, lanky period, and the as this um, swimming and um, getting in her bathing suit, and uh, that's.
1: And she, she hates the idea that she's about to really blossom, and yet she can't really show herself off because she's Jewish and she has to go swimming at the Jewish country club. <laughs> right. And that's how it was, by the way, in the '40s. There was this one club, all the other fabulous... I mean, even though Jews have run Hollywood, and I'll I'll say this as a Jew, I don't want to sound like an anti-Semite, Jews have run Hollywood pretty much forever, but at the same time, there was always a lot of uh, prejudice and segregation and restrictions, so the most, the fanciest places in in town were um, off-limits to Jews for many, many years.
0: Uh Is... Is there still segregation? I, I, I've heard there's still, I mean, not segregation as overtly as back in the 40s, but I have heard some, um, Sarah Silverman is who I'm thinking of. I've he- I heard an interview with her where she f- um, felt like she wasn't getting parts because she was Jewish. So.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My wife and I were just talking yesterday. I was talking bo- about a book I like, not my book, somebody else's, and how it might make a wonderful movie adaptation. And it happens that the hero of the book is a Jew in his 30s. So we were kind of going back and forth, like, who would play that guy? And it's like we couldn't come up with a single... I mean, there's Adrian Brody. And then when you get past, And he's not right for the part. When you get past him, like, there's nobody. In the old days, I guess, there would have been... I mean, not the old days, but in the 60s, 70s, you would have had Dustin Hoffman. It seems like um, there was a time 20 years, 30 years ago, where casting was a little more wide open. Uh, now I have a hard time, you know, you're the, the leading men of, of that age are, you know, kind of the Ben Afflecks and Matt Damons and Matt Dillons and guys who are kind of white bread um, and not ethnic at all, unless they're Hispanic or black. But in terms of Jew- Jewishness, it's very tough to come by. And we ended up talking about like two Italians. Uh, Italian-Americans, Paul Giametti and Mark Ruffalo. And it's like, I I guess we could dress them up as Jews and and make that fly, but Uh as as far as real Jews go, I don't think there are... I mean, she's right, Sarah Silverman, I think. There is a kind of uh, funny uh, prejudice, I guess, against that kind of ethnicity, even though, as I said, almost every studio head is Jewish, most of the executives, you know. Uh And yet, I guess there's a self-hatred there, too. They don't want to see themselves on-screen looking... I mean, Ben Stiller, who's quite clearly... He's half-Jewish in real life, and he occasionally will play a Jewish character. He's rarely identified, even as in those Jewish roles, explicitly as being Jewish. They sort of skirt the issue. You know? I think there's a feeling it makes people uncomfortable out in the heartland. You know, America doesn't want to hear the word Jew. You know. So I think the Jews of Hollywood have always been really sensitive about that. Maybe more sensitive than... Uh, had they not been Jewish. They were always... Concerned about not rubbing their Jew- Jewishness in the face of, of America. They always you know, were very um, actively assimilating. And, and I talk about it in the book, they play polo. I mean, they're taking up all these kind of sports and uh, affectations that I think they associate with uh, Gentile America.
3: Right,
1: right. 87.9 FM,
0: Power Cat Radio. We'll hear more from him later in the program. His novel's called Out.
1: And my next big break, of course, was writing Cape Fear for Scorsese. Um, and that was a huge break, and uh, you know, you could say I've been coasting off that ever since. <laughs> In a way, I mean, people love that movie. They, uh, you know, they are endlessly interested to talk to me about what it was like and working with Marty, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, even though it's now like fifteen years,
0: what was it like working with Marty, et cetera, et cetera?
1: <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, he's he's a genius, as we all know. I, I sort of think of him as like the Wolfgang Mozart of filmmaking. He's uh, he does everything. I mean, I'll tell you the one downside of it is he's such he's so intuitive and so brilliant that even though I watched him direct the movie, it's very hard to, and tried to learn everything I could by watching it. It's sometimes hard because you would blink and the shot was set up already. You know, he wasn't a, a guy who would sort of have to laboriously figure out what to do next. It was always like put the tracks there and let's we're going to zoom here and we're going to like dolly in and then we're going to and then we're going to cut on the close up. And you know. Occasionally I would say, like, well, why'd you do it that way? And he'd be like, well, it's like a shot from a John Ford movie from, uh, you know, Rio Bravo. And uh, which, uh, you know, he he has like a Rolodex of shots in his head, which I don't. So uh, it was often hard to kind of really click into his method because he's just operating on another sphere totally from not only from me, but from most filmmakers. But it was still quite fascinating and a great collaboration.
0: Does, um, does he normally allow um, screenwriters
1: on the set? I was the first. I, uh, I broke the mold. I'm happy to say he had never had a screenwriter on the set. And people who knew him, who knew I was about to start working with him, warned me not to expect that he would let me watch him shoot. Uh, no, I mean, in fact, he was famous for kicking his friends. I mean, he, he, uh, he was only working at the time with friends like Paul Schrader and Richard Price. And he would banish them from the set. So I didn't think I stood a chance. But in the end, um, I kind of pestered him a little bit in a low-key way about it, and he eventually relented and let me hang out. And I, I ended up staying almost the whole time um, on the location for Cape Fear. And then he ended up letting me sit in the cutting room with him and um, actually getting feedback from me about how to trim scenes and stuff. So, And ever since then, I have heard that he has now realized that it's a good thing to have a writer on the set, because you can bounce ideas and questions off writers and, and actually we're not you know, always getting in the way we, we sometimes know what we're talking about and how to help
0: Were you there for the uh, Juliet Lewis Robert De Niro scene with the finger sucking?
1: I was, in fact we, um, we rehearsed that scene on the weekend before it was shot and it was just Juliet and De Niro and Marty and I and um, Freddie Francis the cinematographer oh and the script supervisor, we all went to the um, high school where that was shot on a, I think it was a Saturday morning, and they had the script Juliet and De Niro each had a copy of the script with them and then they um what we thought we would do is let them wa- run through the scene a few times and start improvising yeah. and uh, you know De Niro of course, is a superb improviser Juliet was it was really her first major role, so she yeah. didn't she didn 't know what she was doing, but that kind of helped to uh-huh. the amateurishness of how yeah. she was approaching. The, uh, the work and then I sat there and I w- listened to them and every time they came up with something good a good improvised line I would write it down huh. and when we were all done they maybe did it three or four times um, going sometimes pretty far afield from the script and most of it wasn't great but each of them came up with a couple of gems and then I went back to my hotel room and I rewrote the scene incorporating the best of the improvised material into the script and then we sort of had those um, printed as script pages and distributed for the day which was very cool. And Marty was so excited because he put AB camera there. He was shooting simultaneously at an angle, each of them. Oh, wow. And uh, actually the one thing that De Niro hadn't done in the run through was stick his finger in her mouth. And she, it was a secret. He didn't even tell Marty he was going to do it. Uh, and he kept it uh, secret from her most especially. So the look of surprise on her face is genuine. That's the first take in the movie. And when her eyes widened, she absolutely was freaking out. She had no goddamn idea what he was going to do. And then he does it again. <laughs> so uh, that's why it looks the way it does. It, yeah. it, it's a genuine moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, oh yeah. Thank you. I wrote a, uh, n- you know, all the films I've written have been studio movies, but recently I did a teeny tiny movie that was a true indie. I mean, it was really financed by an independent production company uh, for under a million bucks called Love is the Drug and it was selected uh, at the su- uh, Slamdance Film Festival where it premiered like a month ago and did really well. It got a great review and variety to my amazement because it's about teens in L.A. doing very, very bad things and it's very dark and I think we're um, you know, knocking wood crossing my fingers we're um, uh, maybe about to get into either like Tribeca or the Los Angeles Film Festival we're going to be at more festivals and there's been some interest from just independent art house distributors uh, in picking up the movie as well. So I'm hoping it'll be seen soon. It stars Lizzie Kaplan from Mean Girls. And it was directed by a very uh, talented young English video director named Elliot Lester. It's his first feature. He did a wonderful job. So that's also very cool. Oh, and, oh yeah. Thank you. I wrote a... Uh, n- you know, all the films I've written have been studio movies, but recently I did a teeny tiny movie it was a true indie, I mean it was really financed by an independent production company uh, for under a million bucks called Love is the Drug and it was selected uh, at the su- uh, Slam Dance Film Festival where it premiered like a month ago and did really well, it got a great review in variety to my amazement because it's about teens in LA doing very very bad things and it's very dark and I think we're um, you know, knocking wood, crossing my fingers, we're um, uh, maybe about to get into either like Tribeca or the Los Angeles Film Festival, we're going to be at more festivals and there's been some interest from just independent art house distributors uh, in picking up the movie as well so I'm hoping it'll be seen soon it stars Lizzie Kaplan from Mean Girls and it was directed by a very uh, talented young English video director named Elliot Luster, it's his first feature he did a wonderful job so that's also very cool Wesley Strick, thank you so much for talking with me today it's been fun, thanks for talking to me too But wait, there's more. That's not the
0: end of the interview. Well, it kind of was, but it isn't for some odd reason. I have another 17 minutes of tape because, yes, I really suck at organizing a lot of these old tapes. I believe this is part of the same interview. And um, yeah, it's looser. I don't know exactly what happened and enjoy it um upcoming news i'm teaching novel three at ucla extension in winter quarter feel free to join that workshop i also have a beginning fiction writing workshop coming up in uh, the winter go to tony for more information for that and next week on drinks with tony we have our guest is jim ruland he's the co-author of my damage with keith morris and on the second part of that program we're going to have an interview with marky ramon of the ramones Now back to matters at hand, enjoy this um, extra, this extra um, interview, excerpt with Wesley Strick. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Enjoy the show. So uh, you saw, you saw this piece is, um, you couldn't make it as a script or as a film. Um, do you have aspirations for another novel? Or are you working on something else right now? Yes. Okay.
1: I, I have um, I've been working on a second novel uh, really for the last year and a half, often enough. Okay. Um, and it's quite different than Out There in the Dark. Uh-huh. Um, it's called Wise Child, and it's contemporary. And it, it, the inspiration for it came through just a friend of uh, my wife's, really her best friend, has, has a son who, um, you know, had to go to one of these, um, what they call emotional growth, Schools up in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, those are for teens that have, you know, have gotten into trouble or might get into trouble with whatever, you know. Um, and I don't know if you know about these schools. They're they're sort of enclosed. They're out of. They, they tend to be off um, in remote areas so the kids can't, you know, have to stay. Can't run away. Uh-oh. And the, it's sort of boot camp a little bit. The kids the kids are woken up early to do chores. The idea is to kind of get. Rid them of their worst habits and get, and get them away from the kids, uh, their friends who, who maybe are bad influences in the, b- in the big city. Yeah. And it has saved lots of lives. So um, I had heard a lot about this school from her and interesting details that I thought would be a really cool, interesting setting for a sort of allegorical story about teens forming their own society. Yeah. Um, in the book, uh, unexpectedly, the adults are kind of rem- removed from the picture. And uh, these kids have a couple of we- three weeks really, in which they're all by themselves, w- waiting to be r- rescued in effect. Yeah, so there's a slight Lord of the Flies aspect to it. But it's really all about how human beings tend to, when they feel in danger uh, and vulnerable, how they will um, submit to authority, authoritarian regimes, and form a totalitarian society uh, to feel safe. Uh, and even the most rebellious of people, once they feel threatened, will actually suddenly become like model citizens and do whatever they're told and believe whatever they're told. So one could say it has some uh, connection to the years that we've been living under the Bush administration during the war on terror, et cetera. So it's a bit about all that stuff.
0: You're Republican, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, card carrying, yeah. And my wife's a member, the Daughters of the American Revolution, yeah.
0: It's showing, it's showing. Thank you. Did you say you were in your 30s and 19, in the 80s?
1: I might have said that, yeah. <laughs>
0: you take very good care of yourself. I,
1: I, <laughs> I live in L.A., you know, so I'm always... Okay, uh, that's it. Okay. I, got, I got to move to L.A. Plastic surgery, and then I have my blood changed once a year in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, okay. Which oh, is wow. expensive, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. I, I often find myself lying next to Keith Richards. <laughs> who doesn't look so great anymore, but, you know, he's 90 now. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of your favorite writers,
1: screenwriters or, or prose writers? Both. Sure. As a, my my hero screenwriter is Robert Town. Um, partly because one of my very very favorite movies, modern movies. And when I say modern, I mean you know sort of from the seventies on. Uh, Chinatown. Um, but, but in a, like a three-year period in the 70s, town wrote Chinatown, he co-wrote, with Warren Beatty, he co-wrote Shampoo and he wrote The Last Detail. And oh, okay. those are three amazing movies to, to write uh, th- uh, in succession, basically in three or four years. Okay. So for that uh, fertile period alone, I just think he's a kind of giant of, you know what I would call modern mm-hmm. cinema. Uh, so he's my, totally my screenwriting god. Um, the authors that I love, uh, the novelists that I revere, that uh, among the living, are Philip Roth and Joyce Carol Etz. I, I you know, just read them. Br- I've read probably everything Philip Roth has written. Joyce Carol Etz has written like 190 books, uh, but I've read quite a few of them. And she's, I think she's amazing. I love her. You know, she's she's got this brilliant, incisive intelligence, but she also has a very lurid sensibility, which, as a Hollywood screener, I can really dig. Uh-huh. And I love the combination of the two. You know, most people, as bright as she, write sort of much more, I don't know, sort of restrained kind of books. She goes all out. I mean, she goes all the way. She never pulls her punches in terms of her narrative. So I I respect that. I mean, she gets very gothic and very edgy and out there. I love that.
0: What's a good start for uh, reading her? Because I haven't read anything by her.
1: Well, um, uh, rape, a love story, I think is amazing. My wife and I just, just last night were talking about the book, uh, The Tattooed Girl, which is um, just a trip. I mean, it's, it goes places that are pretty remarkable. Um, her short story collections are, are wonderful, too. Oh, um, there's a wonderful, she writes wonderfully about race. Um, a theme she comes back to often is white girls who get uh, erotically involved with and obsessed with black men. She's written two great books. Um, one is with that theme. One is called "Because It Is Bitter and Because It Is My Heart," and the other great one is called um, "I'll Take You There." Okay. Yeah, I, so I recommend all of those. Yeah. yeah.
0: What tripped me out is actually—it's um, probably, it's probably won't fit in the interview—but wow! Well, you say last detail, shampoo. Those were also by the same director, right? Oh, that should be really good. Uh, yeah. The yeah. Director. And he also did Harold and Mott. No, I didn't know this until a couple days ago. So I got shampoo and the last detail in my Netflix mailbox right now. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> that was just like the weirdest thing when right. you like, brought both those up. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Who's your
1: favorite
0: Dead Rider, honey? What? Oh yeah, let's go for <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've known you so long, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> okay, you've talked about the living riders. Now, who's your favorite Dead Riders?
1: Uh, my favorite Dead Rider is Franz Kafka. Um, I, I mean, without any, there's nobody near him as far as I'm concerned. He is the man. Uh, if I could, you know, come back as and not be Jack White, uh, it would be <laughs> it would be Franz Kafka. Um, although Jack White, you know, was married to Meg White, and that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if Kafka ever got laid, but uh, you know, the trial and the castle, um, you know, and Metamorphosis. Just there's nothing c- to compare with those extraordinary but I mean not only do I think he's hilariously funny um, but he was so prescient and so um, ahead of his time in terms of seeing where the 20th century was going I mean he saw the totalitarian threat from he didn't know that it was gonna be called fascism and communism but he saw it coming and he wrote about it out in allegorical terms you know 20 years before full, you know, came to full flower, but he knew, he saw it, and he knew it. He was a prophet. It was just amazing.
0: Have you visited, visited his grave?
1: <laughs> no, you know, we, we want to go to Prague more than anything. Not so much to his grave as to see the house where he lived and worked, which I hear is about like eight feet wide and kind of amazing looking uh, home. But yeah, well that's a trek that we're going to do one of these yeah. days, because he is, I mean, ultimate, uh, my ultimate hero, I suppose, um, even above and beyond my other two ultimate heroes, Bob Dylan and Lenny Bruce. So these are the three Jews of the 20th century that <laughs> made a difference to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: So you ha- have you been to Prague?
1: No, not yet. Uh, I intend to go there and do yeah. some heavy drinking, yeah.
0: We, we, we were there about 10 years ago, and yeah, heavy drinking, I mean, that just started me as an alcoholic right away. But um, yeah, but the Jewish cemetery, oh my God, that was just like, I was, um, you know, I don't d- know too much of the history of it, but it was like, um, you know, I was an emotional wreck after that tour, and then I wanted to go to, to Kafka's grave, but for some reason we couldn't figure out the train schedule out there or whatever. So. Anyway,
1: that's no, we, that's we just as well. It to Kafka. We, um, yeah.
0: yeah we, well, you know, and we made it to Jim Morrison. When we were in Paris. And, you
1: know.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Else, uh, Balzac. You was know.
1: oh, he there in the in the Was yeah. it Lachaise? Yeah. Uh-huh. We haven't been there. But yeah, but we saw the movie. What movie? <laughs> <that> <laughs> the movie? Doors. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing time wise? just want to make sure that we're all done. Oh, on. What time is it? uh, It's
3: quarter to seven. Okay, yeah. we're coming. you. Um. Uh, it. Yeah. Oh,
0: thank you. Yeah, yeah, actually. You okay. gonna get some notes on my novel
1: that I'm working on there,
0: too.
1: You, yeah. <laughs> I'll interview you. Uh,
3: what's that? When you're done I'll
1: interview you. Oh what yeah, no, that'd be great. Yeah. I would be honored. Yeah. Uh, do you have a set, set writing schedule? Yes, I'm uh, yeah, a little bit like Kafka I work as like a sort of banker's hours. Um I, I have a kind of very bourgeois kind of approach to my writing. Okay. It works for me. I um you well first of all my well, now we have one kid at home art. Second, uh, the oldest kid is at college, but our younger kid um, is still in high school, so we have to get up at six forty-five every morning to get him to school. So I'm up quite early, and usually by eight I'm writing, um, and I find my if I don't start by eight I'm losing valuable time because that's when my brain seems to be really starting to make the synaptic connections, um, and my best writing is done between probably between eight and noon. Um, after that, I'm probably no good as a writer. I, I still have a little bit of juice left as an editor. I can go back and look at my work and tighten it up and polish it, and maybe return phone calls and stuff. But I really try now to, now that I've been at it all this time, to keep my meetings um, to the afternoon. I used to meet whenever people wanted to meet. And then it took me about 10 years to realize, that I shouldn't be meeting in the morning because that's my writing time. And so my motto now is if I'm driving to a meeting at 10 a.m., I've screwed up really badly. I should, well, I should be at home at my computer doing work and not, you know, changing lanes. So, in fact, once I realized that, my, I think my output is, has really increased. I've become more productive because I, I really am, came to understand that my best writing is done in the a.m. So the, yeah. I, have good, I have good ideas in the middle of the night, but I don't actually write. I'll just sort of wake up at three in the morning. I can write a whole scene in my head at three in the morning, then go back to sleep and, and then in the morning type it up. Yeah, and I've done that quite a bit. and sometimes I have breakthrough ideas in the middle of the night that I could never have uh, during my waking hours um, just sort of vaulting over logic problems or you know during the day you tend to be sort of literal minded about the connections you make At night you can make leaps, great wonderful dreamlike leaps and come up with uh, you know fabulous new stuff and sometimes I rely on that I'll I, if I have a big script problem that I can't solve I'll just think oh, one of these nights it'll come to me and it, it usually does you know at 2 or 3 a.m. Yeah. So um, so you,
0: you're you heavily, heavily reliant on your subconscious that's kind of why the reason why you work early
1: yeah very much I am um, you know ma- many of the scripts I've written have literally come out of dreams, um, or if not, uh, explicitly the dream state, um, like in that weird um, uh, period when you are just waking, you know, when, when your brain has still hasn't sort of uh, reaccustomed itself to, like, the waking world. So, I, I, yeah, often before I'm sort of pre-logical, I guess, I'll have a co- really cool idea. And I have based entire screenplays on ideas that have come to me then, yeah. Do
0: you have advice for a
1: uh, beginning novelist?
0: No, because you, you were writing for a while as a screenwriter, and this is your first novel, so I know they're two completely different mediums. Um, so, I, you know, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
1: and advice, What well, you mean creatively? And like how to do the work or how to get published? Which? Oh, yeah, both, I guess. You know, the work of novel writing is interesting because it's like a. M- sort of much more interior, I find, than writing screenplays. Screenplays is more exterior, you're trying to solve sort of physica- physical problems and plot problems. Um, and those things you have to deal with in novels, but you also have to do a lot of sort of excavating of your own consciousness. You have to dig deeper, I think, just because a book is just longer and denser and more intricate, uh-huh. just being a bigger thing, I think. Um, so you just ha- I think it just requires more concentration and more time. Um, You can write a, a, I mean, I think probably some of the great Hollywood screenplays have been written in six weeks. Um, I don't think many great novels have been written in that length of time. It's it's maybe more like you have to know that it's going to take you at least a year to have a good draft of a important, you know, something worth reading uh, as far as fiction, prose fiction goes. And then in terms of getting published, that's tough. You know, even as a pretty well-known Hollywood screenwriter, I, I was having a tough time getting agents and publishers to pay attention to my book. I actually had to change agencies and and sign with ICM um, which has a literary department in New York to, uh, to get a literary agent who could sell my book. I, on my own, was not really able to get anyone in New York to take me seriously. I tried, you know, I sort of did cold letters and phone calls to agents identifying myself as this Hollywood screener and in a way that may even have worked against me. I think yeah, I don't know that Hollywood screeners have a lot of credibility or status in the... Uh, it's sort of reverse snobbery. I mean, um, in New York, you know, they might look... Whereas in Hollywood, I'm considered sort of fairly uh, respected. Um, in New York, what I'm respected for in Hollywood might be considered a detriment, you know, that I might be considered sort of a hack. So uh, I wasn't really getting anywhere until I signed with the ICM. So, uh, you know, it's tough. second time we've heard the class from oh, really? London Calling today. Yeah, we were in the Levi store this morning and they played at, uh, oh, that was I Fought the Law from Give Them Enough Rip. Oh, yeah. yeah. We covered a lot. Is there anything I didn't
0: cover that you wanted to? Do? No, I don't think. Are you working uh, on? Um, are you working on any screenplays right now, or are you involved in development of something right now?
1: Yeah, I, I'm doing a couple of things that are are cool. Um, I'm working with a really good um, film company called Working Title. They're English, but they have an office in Hollywood. You know, they've made like three weddings and a funeral, um, and I don't know, lots of other big hits. But um, and they're very smart and nice. I'm doing a script for them called The Pact, which is a sort of supernatural. Thriller, a romantic kind of thriller. Um, Interesting. I guess in the vein of Rosemary's Baby, which is another favorite of mine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then lastly, the um, thing that I'm excited about is a a collaboration with David Um, Cronenberg. We're trying to um, develop his movie, Dead Ringers, as a HBO series. Uh So I've written the pilot script for HBO. And um, I think they like it. Cronenberg's very excited about it. So we're going to see where that goes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, oh yeah, thank you. I wrote a, uh, n- you know, all the films I've written have been studio movies, but recently I did a teeny tiny movie that was a true indie. I mean, it was really financed by an independent production company uh, for under a million bucks called Love is the Drug. And it was selected uh, at the su- uh, Slamdance Film Festival where it premiered like a month ago and did really well, got a great review in Variety, to my amazement, because it's about teens in LA doing very, very bad things, and it's very dark. And I think we're, um, you know, knocking wood, crossing my fingers, we're um, uh, maybe about to get into either like Tribeca or the Los Angeles Film Festival, we're gonna be at more festivals. And there's been some interest from just independent art house distributors uh, in picking up the movie as well, so I'm hoping it'll be seen soon. It stars Lizzie Kaplan from Mean Girls, and it was directed by a very uh, talented young English video director named Elliot Lester. It's his first feature. He did a wonderful job. So that's also very cool. <laughs>
0: Next week on Drinks with Tony, we have our guest is Jim Ruland. He's the co-author of My Damage with Keith Morris. And on the second part of that program, we're going to have an interview with Marky Ramone of the Ramones.